I mean, there's, maybe in my mind, in your mind, great leaders. And here is one that was a tremendous leader, a tremendous leader. He would be, I would say, a leader of leaders. I think you would agree that he preached one of the finest sermons in church history, he being the very one who was given the divine revelation out of his mouth when he said in Matthew 16, 16, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. In fact, out of his mouth came divine revelation. And yet on one night in a flash, he would weep bitterly over the denial that came from his lips. Of course, I'm talking about the apostle Peter. On that dark night as Jesus was being hideously beaten and spit upon, Peter was outside, the Bible says, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you too were with Jesus. But he denied it, the text says, before all, saying, I don't know what you are talking about. And when he had gone out into the gateway... The Bible says another servant girl saw him and said this man was with Jesus. And again he denied it with an oath. And he said, I don't know the man. Later bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you are one of them. They said to him, for the way that you talk um, gives you away. Then he began, the Bible says, to curse and swear and say, I don't know the man. And as soon as that period was put on that sentence, immediately a cock crowed and Peter remembered the words, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, as you know, and wept bitterly. I mean, it's really amazing. The tongue is a powerful tool. And with it, you can do what we just did, praise God. With it, we can teach the word of God. With that tongue, we can speak and evangelize the lost. And yet, with that same tongue, we can slice and dice someone's character into pieces with slander and gossip and just doubt. Well... You say, what can we do? Well, there is something we can do. We can turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 4 because Paul's going to tell us how to tell the truth. He's going to tell us what to do even in a second illustration with anger. And so as your Bible is open, Ephesians 4.1 is our guide. Now you remember here in these last months, we've been talking about in 4.1 the worthy walk. Let your walk be commensurate with chapters 1 through 3. You've been given a glorious position in Christ. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now he says that position needs to be moved, if you will, into your practice. And then as he finished 1 through 16, he began to launch that section with how to do that. And he began to address the old man and what we needed to put off in 17 through 19. And then he began to tell us what we need to put on in 20 through 24. 
And then he told us how to actually do that and what we were taught in him. He said, number one, you need to mortify the flesh or mortification of the flesh. He said, if you're going to put off and put on, you need to meditate, if you will, on the word of God in verse 23. And then in verse 24, he said, as you take off and you put on, you need to manifest the character of God and the person of Christ in holiness. Now, there was some language in there that was fairly intense. It's biblical truth. It's putting off the old and putting on the new. And we did our best to talk about what it meant to mortify the flesh. We talked about meditating and renewing the mind, which was R.C. Sproul's famous tagline, to renew the mind. It's interesting, and we said there to put off and to put on our aorist tense realities. They're our position, but in verse 23, it was a present tense that we're to renew our mind continually. But still, you might have been left and say, you could say, but what does that exactly mean? And Paul, the master teacher, proceeds then with five illustrations how to do exactly what you were already taught in verse 21, and namely those three concepts that we mentioned. They're they're right there. There's five illustrations, and they flow from 25 down through verse 32. What's interesting about these five illustrations, and you'll see this, they all involve relationships. They all involve us with one another, both in the home and certainly in the church. Let me give you a framework, and we'll be brief here. Each of these illustrations has first a negative prohibition. Obviously, that's connected to what we must put off. Then that negative prohibition is followed by a positive command. In other words, here's what you must put on and here's how you even renew your mind. And then it's not just a negative prohibition, a positive command. He gives a purpose attached to it of what will happen when you put these truths into practice. So he takes us, I'll show you, from telling lies to telling the truth, from sinful anger to righteous anger, from stealing to hard work in 28, from corrupting words to edifying words, from vice that he lists down at the end of chapter 4 in verse 31 to the virtues. And really what he's saying is this, you have been given a new nature, a new life, a new self at salvation, and Paul is saying, act like it. And so for our time today as we lead into the communion, let's try to get at least two of those illustrations out. The first illustration of how to practically put this into our life is tell the truth. Tell the truth. Look at the text in 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And so he begins here. Let's look at a little outline. There's a negative prohibition that you, if you're in Christ, must put off. 
Now you'll note, look at the text in 25. He's linking to it, linking it to what became before. Therefore, he says, having put away falsehood. In other words, that old man, that old self was crucified with Christ when you came to him. In fact, the old man, look back at 417, and he says, I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How did they walk? In the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. For they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But the transition in verse 20, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. And so he begins here with this prohibition, if you will, to put away falsehood. And look specifically at verse 22 again. Put off, there's the thought, your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And so we talk through that to put off the old man. Now specifically, you can see in the text, he says to put away falsehood is what it says, okay? It's the Greek word, I don't, you don't need Greek, you, it's the word falsehood for us, but you would understand it. It's the Greek word pseudos, okay? We get our word pseudo from that, obviously. And something that's false opposes the truth. And what opposes the truth, I believe in this context, falsehood is the subject of lying, if you will. And what Paul is going to say very specifically to you, very specifically to me, that if you're in Christ and you're a new creation and you've already come to Christ, then you need to be in practice who you are in position. You need to put off, if you will, falsehood or lying. You say, how serious is that? Well, <laughs> you would understand it's very serious not to lie. It says in Revelation 21, 8, for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and then it says in 21, 8, and all liars, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, the second death. In other words, hell is reserved for those who are cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, and all liars. Do you put lying on that level? I mean, this is a serious truth here. The Bible says in John 8, 44, regarding the devil, you remember this in our exposition, that he was a murderer from the beginning. Interesting. He does not stand in the truth because there's absolutely no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks from his own character for he is a liar. And the Bible says that he's the father of lies. So this is a, a crucial subject for us. You're aware, I believe, that one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 16 is that you shall not bear false witness. 
very well. You're to put away falsehood or lying, and lying is one of those sins. Now, let me build that out just a little bit for you moms and for you dads, even with young kids as well. That includes all kinds of lying. You say, what do you mean? Well, I just mean plain lying. Certainly, we would include in that just telling a bold-faced lie. We understand that. I do. You do. But there's a host of other lies. Say, like what? Well, just telling half-truths is a lie. Just exaggerating the truth is a lie. In fact, one writer said that our entire world system is based on lying. And he said, can you imagine what would happen if everybody in the world told the truth? I think you realize we'd have at that point World War III. I mean, the truth is, is if the truth ever came out about anything, true statement, our entire world would collapse. That's how big and important this is. I mean, lawyers lie, except the ones in this church. Media lies, the big word today called fake news. Doctors sometimes lie. Teachers lie. Students lie. Preachers, as we've seen before us in the last couple of years, lie. At times, salesmen lie. Secretaries and bosses lie. Advertisers lie. Politicians lie. The government lies. Am I right? I mean, this is just part of the world in which we live. People cheat at work. They cheat on taxes. Students cheat. Sometimes we fail to keep our promises, even to God. I would include in this, to put away falsehood or lying, flattery, telling people and telling them things that are not true so that you look good or I look good. And so we flatter people. I mean, the truth is, Proverbs 6, 16, can't say it enough, that God hates a lying tongue. You know, when we had the wonderful privilege of raising our seven kids, what a joy, seven kids in nine years, there were things in our home, obviously, that we disciplined for. But I'll tell you, rising above maybe any of them in terms of severity that needed to be dealt with was lying. If you were not honest to dad, to to mom, that one bore serious consequences. And so what Paul says here, you, you know this, he gives a negative prohibition, put this kind of stuff away, But then he gives, secondly here, a positive command, and you can see it. Look at the text again in verse 25. He said, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Speak the truth. Now, you remember that Paul, prior to his conversion, was a committed Orthodox rabbi, And I sometimes believe Paul just emphatically knew the scripture, maybe even in his unredeemed days, or it could have been that he's 
quoting scripture here. When you see that in verse 25, put away falsehood, and then he mentions this, to speak the truth with his neighbor, I believe it's a quote out of Zechariah. Zechariah 8.16, where it says, these are the things, you could see it, that you shall do. Isn't this interesting? Speak the truth, same thought, to one another, and it says, render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Now, Zechariah 18 is a prophetic text. It's dealing with the future. It's dealing with the coming kingdom. And when they go into that kingdom, one of the first things he says in Zacharias, or Zechariah, excuse me, is to speak the truth. I think it's very interesting. In the future, Jerusalem, at least in that context, in Zechariah 8, 3, will be a, a city of truth. So it's interesting, as, you, as Israel would enter into that kingdom, they're to speak the truth, and as you have become a new man or a new woman, a new self in Christ, he tells you, maybe in this sense, the first thing practically to do is to speak the truth. You say, well, what kind of truth? Look at it again in verse 25. He says to speak the truth. We've already looked at that, but just for a moment, the truth. Look back to Ephesians 1.13. What is the truth? Well, we know in him also, in 1.13, when you heard, this is right, the word of truth. I mean, the word of truth is, is the gospel. It's just truth itself. Here it's truth. Obviously, the former manner of life was deceitful, but you need to speak the truth. Look back at chapter 4 in verse 15. He says there, remember that the false teachers in verse 14 were carried about by every wind of doctrine? Oh boy, they're all over the place. They're just blowing their false junk all over the place. And they do it by human cunning, by craftiness, and they're utterly deceitful. So you know what he says to the body of Christ? You could see it in verse 15 of chapter 4. Speaking the truth, there it is, in love rather than false doctrine, this church, we need to speak the truth. In fact, look over at 421. It says there, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the truth in Jesus. Certainly, look at verse 23, where it says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self and it says in the ESV, created after the likeness of God, it says in true righteousness and holiness, but I think it's best, as I mentioned a few weeks back, created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In other words, righteousness and holiness comes from the truth. So here he says, you need to, all of us, put away any falsehood, Put away any line, and you, even as I speak, as we come to communion, need to speak the truth to one another. And it's a present imperative, meaning that you never arrive at this place. You're continually challenged and encouraged to speak the truth. Stop lying 
And it says, look at the text again, just a little nuance. Let each one of you speak the truth. In other words, no one is excluded. You understand all of us are to put this into practice. Jesus, do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount said this? That he said, let what you say simply be yes or no. Either yes or no, and anything beyond these, he said, is evil. We used to say to our kids, mean what you say and say what you mean without reservation, without hesitation, and without rationalization. I'm just thinking sometimes of our culture. Sometimes we say, let me be honest with you. Does it imply that previously we were not? Or we sometimes use this phrase, let me shoot straight with you. Were you not shooting straight before that? Listen, telling the truth has no degrees. It has no shade, if you will. A half-truth is a whole lie, and a white lie is a big lie. God has never had any standard lower than absolute truthfulness. That goes for marriage vows. That goes for business contracts. That goes for work hours. That goes for taxes, etc. You tell the truth in the home and in the church. You even tell the truth on your resume. People have gotten in trouble, haven't they, for falsifying degrees that they do not have. You tell the truth. Acts, you remember in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead because they said one thing and they did another. Maybe we need to remember that old adage that says, tell the truth, the whole truth, Nothing but the truth, so help me, what? God. Just, you say, well, what does this mean, to put off and to put on? Well, here's at least what it means. You've got to tell the truth. So he gives a negative prohibition, put away falsehood. He gives a positive command, speak truth to each other, and then he attaches a purpose to it. Look at it in verse 25. He said, for we're members of one another. In other words, he just adds this in there. He gives the reason or the purpose to do this. Why? Because we're connected to one another. We're part of each other. We're members of the same body that Christ is the head. And this body, Grace Church of the Valley, must be marked by this kind of conversation, speaking the truth. It must be marked in your own home. As soon as lies come in, you're in trouble. Listen, I've counseled people and counseled married couples sometimes in impure relationships. Multiple cell phones. Multiple lies. And I got to tell you, sometimes as a pastor, I'm not thinking of anybody in this church after I hear the story, through tears, I just thought, do you know how hard some people have to work to lie and to continue in their deception? 
It's just utterly exhausting. Two, three phone calls, different emails, different accounts, lying here, lying here, and one lie leads to another to the point where their whole life is a lie. It's scary. But here's what Paul's saying to us. Listen, even as we come to the Lord's table, here's what to put off falsehood. Here's what to put on. We speak the truth, and here's the reason why we're members of one another. Adrian Rogers, the old preacher, said it is better to speak the truth that hurts than heals than falsehood that comforts and kills. So listen, how do I put this on? How do I do it? Speak the truth. That's the first illustration. The second illustration is don't be angry. Don't be angry. Look at it in verse 26. Be angry. So what does that mean? We'll talk about it. And it says, do not sin. And then you've seen this before. Do not give. Let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity. You know this to the devil. Now, he says there to be angry. And just for a second, there's different words in the language to speak of anger. But I think we would understand anger is a just a strong desire. It's a desire, strong desire of displeasure, maybe even antagonism. Obviously, sometimes a synonym for this word, uh, anger can be rage or fury, sometimes even indignation. Sometimes another word for anger, even in the scripture, is wrath. Now, I'm going to come to this in just a moment. What does it mean to not let the sun go down on your anger? But maybe let me just step back and push into your life. Men, how do you deal with anger? In the marketplace, in your home, with your spouse. Wives, how do you respond to unkindness? How do you respond even to a harsh word? Mothers, I'm smiling because it's not always easy. How do you respond to your children when they are disobedient, even at times as they get older, maybe disrespectful? Students, how you doing with your teachers? How you doing with your friends? How you doing with that subject called anger with your coaches? Children, if you're hearing my voice, maybe you're in fifth or sixth grade, seventh and eighth, how you doing with your brothers and sisters? Do you lose your temper? How do you handle it when your plans go wrong? How do you handle an accusation against you? How do you respond in such situations? You say, well, Scott, it's just anger. Well, step back with me. Cain was angry with his brother and what? Killed him. It's out of the heart that comes murder and anger and he killed his brother. I mean, I bet you Moses just thought, really? Was, was it just kind of a little thing? I mean, it really wasn't even sort of his fault, right? In fact, Numbers 12 says he's one of the meekest men on the face of the earth, but later he's in the wilderness of Zen, not Sen, you can call it that, but Zen, Z-I-N, and they went without water. And God told them, do you remember? He's going to bring water. He's going to bring it out of the rock. And he told Moses to do what? 
speak to the rock. And yet, in anger, Moses didn't speak to the rock. What did he do? You know this. He struck the rock. And just for one sin, Moses was never allowed to enter into the promised land. For that sin, for one sin of anger, for not treating God as holy, he was not allowed to bring the people of Israel into blessing. That's pretty serious, is lying, you see? But these are things that our world excuses. If you can handle this one, and I'm saying this to my own heart, you say, how serious is it? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit a murder or commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And then this thundering statement, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. This is a serious deal, men. People, moms, students. You say, well, what can I do? Well, let me give you just in the text, pretty quickly, four commands to reign in anger. Get a pen out. Get a pencil out, okay? And when I say commands, that's what they are. They're what we call imperative commands, We'll hit these in staccato fashion. First one is be angry. The second one is don't sin. They're all commands. The third one is to not let the sun go down on your anger. And the fourth command is not to give the devil an opportunity. The first command is righteous anger, we'll call it. Look at verse 26. Have you ever just stopped at a, behind two words? Be angry. That's what the Bible says is to be angry, okay? Now, this first command I put under the banner of, let's just call it a righteous anger. You say, does this contradict verse 31? Look down at the text in 431. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. And my answer is no. Paul is referring here to a righteous anger on this first command. In other words, he says, and I'm glad he does, he says to be angry. In other words, just stop, put a little period there. Not all anger is wrong. Righteous anger, just briefly, is all over the scripture. Righteous anger, you say, what is it? It grieves the heart of God. That's righteous anger. It hinders his kingdom advancement. It fails to glorify and honor God. And there's times and places in the scripture where anger and righteous anger is permitted. You say there are, yeah, I could do a six-week series on that, but I won't. But in Mark chapter 3 and verse 5, there was a man in the synagogue with a withered hand and they weren't going to even talk to him because it's the Sabbath and you can't heal on the Sabbath. And they were watching, the hawks were watching Jesus to see what he would do. 
And the Bible says in Mark 3, 5, he turned around at them with anger. I don't know what you think about Christ, but he had righteous anger. He went in in John chapter 2 and made a whip and cleansed the temple because they had turned the house of prayer into a den of robbers. Righteous anger defends God. It defends his glory. But whenever you see examples of such as when even, was it Phineas who put the spike through that man and he was commended for his zeal. When you see such examples as these, there is nothing of self-interest. There is only a holy anger against unrighteousness that is abhorrent to God. In fact, the Bible says, you can look it up, God was angry with Solomon. You say, well, wait, wait a minute, what do you mean he's angry? It's because you're seeing it humanly. In 1 Kings eleven nine, 9, God was angry with Solomon. Why? Because those wives turned his heart away from Yahweh. God was angry with them. In fact, you would understand anger is an attribute of God. So there's room for righteous anger. You say, how so? When God's name is reproached, when his name is dishonored, when his word is not regarded, I understand that. Nehemiah in 5.6 was angry with the Jewish leaders because they were extorting the people of God. Moses in Exodus 16.20 was angry with Israel because they distrusted God and were disobedient. Anger is not always wrong, but it must be controlled before it festers and before it leads to disunity. As I mentioned, it is a, an attribute of God. Say it is? Yeah, sure it is. This is part of God's character, his wrath. It's a righteous anger, certainly, but in Deuteronomy 32, 21, they made me jealous, so God's a jealous God, by what is no God, and they provoked me to anger because of their idols. Now, I want to be clear here. This type of righteous anger doesn't have anything to do with your own cause. When people offend your person, this is not an anger for personal resentment. This is not an anger for personal bitterness. This is not anger because of a personal grudge. This doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with God and his glory. The psalmist said in 119.53, hot indignation seizes me. Why? Because the wicked forsake the law. That is a righteous anger, and maybe, maybe we need a little more of that here. I mean, how do we appropriately deal with this. Righteous anger has a zeal for God's glory. And here, anger is not to be condemned, but commended. So the first command, and that's not all of it, he says is be angry. But then he gives a second command. Would you look at the text where he says there in 26, and do not sin. It's a command. And here is unrighteous anger. 
And I think this is the heartbeat of Paul as you think of it here. It's used in the New Testament, unrighteous anger, and it's always condemned. Always. Just a a few thoughts. The deeds of the flesh, Paul said in Galatians 5.20, are idolatry, enmities, strife, jealousy, and then he lists this, I think it's in the New American Standard, outburst of anger. Here it's fits of anger, disputes and dissensions. I would venture to say that anytime we get angry, it's probably always here in this second category of an unrighteous anger. And so he says, do not sin. Paul put it this way in Colossians 3, kind of brings these together. He says, put them all aside in 3.8. Anger. In other words, put away, put aside unrighteous anger, which is orge there is the word, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth, and do not lie to one another, our first illustration. Why? Because you've laid aside the old self. Paul would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.8, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or without anger, without dissension. In other words, beloved, how can we come to the Lord's table if there's something against one another, or we haven't got clarity, or we haven't got forgiveness, and out of your soul, or my soul, or leadership's soul, anger arises. Remember in our exposition of James, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to what? To anger. This is, again, that unrighteous anger, slow to it. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So what is it, Scott? Unrighteous anger is about my preferences, my expectations, my frustrations, my lack of patience, my lack of joy. That's unrighteous anger. And again, I think Paul being the rabbi here, You could see it there in 26, do not sin. I think he's quoting, I think he's quoting Psalm 4.4. Isn't it interesting? Look at this phrase, be angry. Same language. Do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds. But here he says to be silent. And so here, as you look back in the text, look at it, be angry, do not sin. Certainly unrighteous anger, go down to 31 is what he's talking about. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Let me say it this way so you can understand. Unrighteous anger can become sinful for you, for me, in one of two ways. Say, really? Yeah, one of two ways. Either you can blow up or you can clam up. If you blow up, it's going to come out of your mouth and you're going to tell that person, you know, in our modern vernacular, boy, that guy went ballistic on that guy. Anger. Boy, that guy really gave him a piece of his mind, anger, usually because you've been opposed. This is no part to be grumpy at anything, but you could either blow up or you can clam up, and that's when you internalize it all, and some people internalize it. They don't say a word. 
blindsided, they're just seething. You understand what I'm saying? You could blow up or you clam up, and they're both wrong. This is why the scripture's chocked full of this. And just a few of them, Proverbs 14, 17, a man of quick temper acts foolishly. Foolishly. It says in 1429, whoever is slow to anger is, it says, has great understanding, but he who is, has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 15, 1 Maybe this is for our homes. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, I'm really thankful when I think of that with our elder board. Sometimes there's just intense things, but there's some guys too in our, in our elder board who just have a great sense of humor and sometimes, you know, we know God's sovereign and sometimes we need to not be so intense over everything. And sometimes a harsh word will stir something up and sometimes just a gentle answer will take all the emotions out of it. Proverbs fifteen eighteen says, a hot-tempered man, you know what he does? He texts. No, I'm just kidding. It says, a hot-tempered man, uh, it says... Uh, uh, he, he, what is, there it is. He stirs up strife, but the slow to anger quiets contention. You know, I don't know if it's true or if it's even worth saying, but some people say that unresolved anger is the result of 90% of depression. Hey, trial went the wrong way. Hey, a business contract went the wrong way. Somebody you trusted stabbed you in the back. For you students, maybe somebody did something and caused you to lose face. And all of a sudden, anger wells up. And if we're not careful, it can lead to depression. It says in Proverbs 19, 19, a man of great wrath shall pay the penalty. And if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. And there's just so much more. So he says... There's a righteous anger, be angry. But then he says there's an unrighteous anger, do not sin, don't let it go beyond. But then there's a third command. You say, what am I to do? Well, you could see it there, famous text, verse 26, do not let the sun go down on your anger. It is a rapid response. What do you mean, uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger? Just respond rapidly, okay? Like by the end of the day, I think we all get that. By the end of the day, you need to get a rapid response. Either go to that person or forgive them in your heart. And this is much more important than a rapid response COVID test. It's amazing. Oh, do you got it? Did you test? And I understand that. But do you deal with anger in the same way? I'd venture to say in a body like this, I'm not trying to bash, if you let anger get in your heart and you let the sun go down on your anger, you're going to be in trouble. So he's saying seek reconciliation immediately. Paul is not saying, and you know this, he's not saying that it's okay to be angry all day, but at sunset, make sure you release that anger. 
If you were to take that statement literally, then people living in Greenland at certain times of the year wouldn't have to reconcile for at least 90 days of the year. And on the 89th, I suppose they could let go of it. You understand that. Because the sun doesn't go down there. Here he's just saying time magnifies anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the sun go down in your family on bitterness. Don't let the sun go down on an unforgiving spirit. You'll wreak havoc in this body. Yeah, I mean, you guys know how this can go with students. Well, she said this, and she, she, she told someone else this, and he said this, and all of a sudden, you're dr- driving a big wedge in between friendships, and that may be friendships, but how about a home when that gets in between kids and siblings and grandparents? Listen, if you don't make that quick, The fourth command will come in. You say, what's the fourth command? It's right there, verse 27. And give no, you can see it, opportunity for the devil. Don't give the devil, so what does this mean? Opportunity. Don't give the devil room in your heart. Don't give the devil a place to to act, if you will. Unrighteous anger gives the devil a place to act. You're actually opening the door for this process of sanctification to be stymied. Don't allow lies. Don't allow anger to gain a foothold in your heart and make you bitter. Listen, I'm just telling you, as a guy that's been doing full-time ministry for 33 years, that a deep Seated anger in your soul blunts the sanctifying work of God in your life. I think it goes this way. If you want three words to remember this, you've got the tongue, don't lie. You've got the temper, don't get angry. And then you've got the tempter, the devil. And the devil is going to seize unrighteous anger and spew forth disunity in the church and in the home. And so I would just commend you. You need to be slow to anger. You say, well, Scott, how do I do that? Pray. Ask forgiveness. Let go of what you can't control. Recognize the sovereignty of God Recognize that your heart and my heart, even though we've put on the new man, or in your case, the new woman, at times you just have to let go of things and entrust them to the Lord. You can pray for people. You can, you can come to them. You can quietly come to them. But you don't want to let this thing spew up. You say, what's at stake? Well, huh, you know I'm going to say this. I'm always going to say this. God's glory To him, 321, be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ for all generations. And what Paul wants is unity. What Paul wants is purity. And here, lies as well as sinful anger get in the way. Listen, I'm pleading with you. Don't let the devil get inside you. You say, well, what does that mean? I'm not talking about possession. But he will thwart the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God because of bitterness. Listen, I've been around some missionaries who have come home from the field and through tent, clenched fist and teeth chattering, I just can't. 
So that's why we need to pray. That's why Ken prayed. We need grace and wisdom on the field. It's hard. 